numbers have stabilized, shall we go ahead and kind of get started? So I'll do a little cheesy introduction and uh, we can all kind of roll into it a little bit. So um, hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. This is a live episode of the Climate Scientists podcast, um, which is really just a fancy way of saying it's a webinar um, that we're going to release later as a podcast is really all that that is. Uh, so I started this podcast a few years ago because I like having conversations with other researchers. I like learning from them, and uh, it's been kind of rolling on since then. It's been it's been a lot of fun to do and very rewarding. And a few months ago, oh, I should say I'm an oceanographer. I work at the British Antarctic Survey, and uh, you know, doing ocean modeling and large scale circulation and uh, that sort of thing. And a few months ago, I was officially joined by my new co-host. Ella Gilbert. So Ella is there on the screen as well. Um, would you like to introduce yourself, Ella, a little I, bit? Just yeah, sure. Say, yeah, for, <laughs> for new folks. Yeah, so I'm an atmospheric physicist, I guess. Um, I formerly was at Bath, which is how, how Dan and I know each other. Um, but I'm now at the University of Reading. Um, I'm a long-time Antarctic and cloud enthusiast. So at the moment, I'm working on clouds. But always interested in all things polar and all things climate nice okay and we've got two guests today joining us we have kelly hogan and tom anderson kelly would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and well first let me say thanks so much to both of you for being here i'm really glad that you're both here and uh but yeah kelly if you wouldn't mind just saying a little bit about who you are and what you're working on yeah absolutely and um, thanks very much for having me along um, yes, I am Kelly Hogan. I work at the British Antarctic Survey as well. I'm a marine geophysicist, which basically means that I use a variety of acoustic instruments, use sound to map things on the seafloor around Antarctica and Greenland, um, and places like that where there used to be a lot of ice when it was colder in the world. And we look for um, evidence of that past ice flow and also how um, past ice sort of melted and retreated back um, to try to help our glaciologists and our climate scientists today understand what might happen to ice in the future. Great. Thanks, Kelly. And Tom, Tom Anderson, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. So thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm a data scientist also at Bass, and um, I think it's worth a uh, kind of it's worth saying I, I actually don't come from a climate science background. Uh, I come from a machi machine learning background. Um, and I'm a data scientist at the Artificial Intelligence Lab at BASS. So relatively new group, a um, few years old, uh, which has been growing significantly in recent years, uh, which has been really exciting to see. And I've been working on developing an Arctic sea ice forecasting AI. So um, you know, kind of alternative to the traditional approach of developing numerical models based on the laws of physics. So having a, an AI system that can learn everything from, from the ground up. So yeah, and we've had some really nice results so far. So, far, so mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to talking about that today. Excellent. So this episode is ever slightly more structured than the usual ones. The usual ones are conversational. I want this to be conversational as well. But we do have kind of a couple of topics in mind, so we might as well kind of dig into those a little bit. So we, the theme of the episode, I guess you could say, if you wanted to call it that, we're thinking about the future of polar science. And specifically, we're thinking about these kind of two branches. One of them is in the observational realm, going out, taking measurements, going to see 
know, measuring what the ocean is doing now and uh, you know, using that kind of data to understand our world. And then the other part of that is just what Tom was mentioning is, can we use artificial intelligence, which for us in the earth system sciences is a relatively new set of tools. They have been around for a while, but for us, we're only just now getting the volumes of data that you might need to make some of those approaches viable. So can we use artificial intelligence to uh, help our understanding of how the earth system actually functions and what it might do into the future? So the with that in mind, um, we invited Kelly and Tom along today because that's kind of the two areas that, that they are pushing ahead with. And uh, so why don't we start with Kelly? So Kelly, you are going to be working on the new research vessel, the new British Antarctic Survey. I think I said research vessel, just in research <laughs> vessel, the uh, RRS Sir David Attenborough that has been undergoing some sea trials lately. It's it's built, it's in the water, it's all put together, it's got a crew, it's got a captain, and they're testing it out now up around Scotland, if I understand correctly. So would you uh, like to tell us a little bit about the, the ship and your some of your plans? I understand you've got some plans uh, with it that relate to Greenland and doing some science in that area? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, I mean, if we start, I guess, thinking about the ship. So she's being, yeah, as Dan said, she's been, she's in the water now um, and they're sort of testing out all of the sort of really basic uh, systems like propulsion and uh, steering and, you know, the sort of things and, and getting the crew used to her and just seeing how seaworthy she is at the moment. Um, and, you know, she's been a long time coming uh, for the UK science community and polar science community. Um, and, and we've had a lot of discussions around what kind of things people need for now, but also what will they need in the future? Because a ship has a lifetime of, you know, several decades, you know, probably 30-ish years. So we need to have a vessel that works for now and has all the sort of state-of-the-art technologies on board, but then also something that we can sort of update and keep um, keep using, keep updating as technologies change and as our needs change. Um, so, you know, the most exciting thing probably about the Sedaria at Attenborough is um, how versatile she is as a platform for science. So she is a little bit bigger than our research vessels in the past. Um, and that's that's good because she can take more people on board. And that means you can do more science at one time just because you have more people. But actually, her real strength is the capability that she has. So she has a lot of new tools and new spaces on board that we can use to put new tools on. Um, to deploy into the oceans. Uh, and that means that we can do lots of different types of science almost at the same time. So if you, if you try to imagine you know, a, a floating vessel that has a lot of different lab spaces and each one of those lab spaces is designed for a specific purpose, but then we also have the capability to put on containerized labs, which means that if you have a very specific analyses and instrument that you want to do on board and you can fit it into a container you could get your samples from either the ocean or from the seafloor and you could do it in that container so you you have sort of a really versatile space but then there are a couple of like really structural and engineering things on the ship that means that she's super versatile so she has a helideck on the front which means we can deploy helicopters from the ship to take people onto land or to go and do science from helicopters um, you know, directly, you can drop um, oceanographic instruments in, for example, from helicopters, um, which is pretty cool if, if an area is sort of unsafe to go in with, with ships. 
Um, she has a moon pool, which um, if any of our listeners or watchers mm. have seen Deep Blue Sea and have seen that, uh, the, um, the period in that where they have Samuel L. Jackson standing in front of this open water hole, basically, in the platform um, or in their, their research and lab yeah. there. And then the shark it, comes up. So it's, it's something that looks like it shouldn't work. Like it looks like it should. You kind of get yeah, <laughs> like it, it does. It, but <laughs> Yeah, it's basically I mean, it doesn't hole. work if there are sharks coming out of it. No, no, that would be a detriment. I, 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 hope I remember watching that film being through. terrified. Yeah. I was far too young for it. Yeah. Oh, no. well, well, they had genetically modified those sharks, hadn't they? So I think that okay, was. That's fine. Yeah, then. we're not planning on doing any of that. Um, but it is, but it is basically a hole in the ship that you can deploy yeah. um, autonomous vehicles through or different instruments through if the weather is a bit rough outside or if there's lots mm. of ice outside, so you can protect it. Um, you know, you can protect them there. So that means you can keep working. Um, at a time when you might not have been able to do otherwise. Um, so, you know, fe features like that mean that we can use the newest technologies um, from her. Um, you know, when we're in these really remote regions um, and, yeah. and, and as well as doing the science on the ship. Definitely. Now, this is like a basic physics question, I guess, but I, I mean, I know people are wondering well, why doesn't the water, if there's like a hole in the ship, why doesn't the water just splash up onto the inside the ship? Why doesn't it just sink if there's actually a hole in it, right? And it's, yeah. 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 I'm probably not the best person to answer that question, but I mean, it's, it's sort of like answering the question, why doesn't the ship just sink? You know, I mean, you know, she's mm. got ballast tanks and, you know, she's designed to float and the ballast moves around so that she floats. So, you know, I think, you know, whether there's, hole through the middle or not i mean I, I yeah i don't know the details of that maybe um ella or tom knows more than i do about how the physics of that works put us right on the spot there <laughs> well it is yeah this is it's, a physics it's sealed, test. right this is a physics test <laughs> it's not like you've got a hole uh, in the hole that's that would be bad um but having yeah, a, an engineered yeah. moon pool which is sealed off from the rest of the hull is presumably fine yeah yeah. And like you were saying, Kelly, it's not the only thing going on in the force balance of the, the ship. You know, there's many other factors going on there. Yeah. Um, but that, that's really, that's really good. And it uh, sounds really interesting. And th thanks for the, the summary. Do you want to tell us about the Greenland project, about the science that you've got? Um, would you like to do, is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. I would absolutely love to do that. We are, um, we are really happy to have a newly funded science project that will involve a big cruise on the SDA. So the, the Sir David Attenborough, um, and it is up to Greenland. Um, and yeah, it was, it, it's designed, it's a project designed to look at the sort of longer term behavior of, um, glaciers coming down from Greenland and entering the oceans. So, you know, we know now that um, as the ocean is warming, a lot of that warm water is getting up close to our glaciers that are um, entering the ocean and, and melting them um, at an increased rate. Um, and that is increasing, you know, the uh, output of ice from both Greenland and from Antarctica. And that's causing our sea levels to rise. Um, so we want to know sort of, you know, we know this has been happening over the past sort of few decades. And we know that from look at seeing them ourselves, but also from satellite data sets. We've only really had those around for the past sort of 40 or 50 years. And um, so we want to know sort of longer term, how does the ice behave if we keep warming the oceans? Um, so we have um, a cruise um, planned on the SDA for a couple of years time um, to go to a place called Kangalusak Glacier in southeast Greenland. Um, and this is one of these really big glaciers that drains the Greenland ice sheet. 
and we want to collect samples from the seafloor um, and also from the rocks in the fjord and also make a lot of oceanographic measurements in the fjord to look at that, those rates of melting. And then also really what happens if you start increasing all that meltwater and you bring a bunch of um, nutrients with it, so carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, those kind of things, and put that into the ocean. What happens to all the marine critters that live in the ocean? What happens to your marine productivity? Um, do you, you do get a lot more productivity? And then does all of that fall down and get trapped um, in the fjord bottom sediments? So, you know, do you trap more carbon then? You know, is that good for our climate? Um, or will it eventually recycle and escape again? So those are sort of, those are sort of questions we're looking at. Um, but what's really cool, I suppose, is being able to use the SDA is, you know, we've, we've made this plan. And like I was saying a minute ago, you know, what we want to do is use all the different tools that we can from her in one place to study at lots of different scales. So if you can imagine, we can have the big ship sitting there with people taking either biological net samples or sediment samples from the seafloor. You can have people working on the ship there. You can have the small work boat going off to like the coastal areas where the big boat can't go because it's too shallow and they could be making oceanographic um, measurements, so measuring how hot the water is and how it moves. Um, then if you, can't, if you want to get even closer to the glacier where you might have a lot of icebergs or like this dangerous glacier face, um, we have um, an autonomous underwater vehicle that we can deploy at the same time. So that could be running alongside um, the glacier margin, making measurements of, again, of things like the uh, temperature of the water and which way the currents are going. Um, and then we can also deploy helicopters and take people onto land to collect samples, to look at how quickly the ice is, has thinned, basically, or melted in those areas in the past. So you could have all of those things going on at the same time, um, effectively, because the, plat the way the SDA is set up, she works as a, as a platform for, for deploying all these different instruments mm. and people. So she's like the Stanley knife of the uh, research vessel <laughs> world. <laughs> she is, but a, but a high-tech Stanley knife, right? Obviously, like, obviously, obviously, obviously very high-tech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the new uh, Thanks very much for that. I did want to say to the attendees, to the people listening, feel free to ask questions uh, anytime. I believe that should be open for you all now. I'm going to just double-check and make sure that is actually open uh, yeah, it says allow anonymous questions. You can ask anonymous questions, and I can see them here, so do feel free, as we're talking, throw in some questions. We do have a few questions from you all that came in before, like when you registered, and we will do our best to get to that, uh, to get to those time allowing. Well, why don't we shift over to Tom, and let's uh, hear a little bit from Tom about artificial intelligence and some of the work that you've been doing in there. Uh, in that field to try to better understand Arctic sea ice. Is that all right, Tom? Yeah, Ready? yeah, sure. Cool. Yeah, so yeah, so what I do is forecast Arctic sea ice, but um, you know, for context, um, which I think a bit of context is needed, um, at the poles, it gets so cold in the ocean and atmosphere that the ocean literally freezes, which creates this layer of, of frozen water on that floats on the surface. So that's sea ice. Now, as you might imagine, in the winter, it's, it's a lot colder. Um, you know, at the poles, you, you get permanent nighttime um, above a, a certain latitude. So um, the sea ice essentially expands quite dramatically in the winter and shrinks dramatically in the summer. So it has this annual cycle. Um, in the Arctic, 
the sea ice expands to, I think, around 80 Great Britons in the winter. So I think Great Britain is around 200 kilometers squared, and it usually expands to around 15 million. Sorry, yeah, 200,000 yeah, 200, kilometers squared. And yeah, the Arctic expands to around 15 million kilometers squared in terms of the sea ice in the winter. Now, in the summer, that shrinks to usually 50 Great Britons. But because of global warming, the sea ice has seen really significant declines in terms of the extent and thickness and volume of the sea ice. And what that's led to is that the Arctic sea ice extent in the summer has halved. So a really, really significant and dramatic decline. So if you do, if you know, put the numbers together, that turns out 25 Great Britons have been lost from Arctic sea ice in the summer. Now, this has really far-reaching consequences for uh, ecosystems in the Arctic. There's, we, people often think of the poles as these really remote regions where there's no life. Uh, that can be further, further from the truth in the Arctic. There's, there's rich uh, ecosystems and biodiversity, uh, but as well as that, there's also a, a big human population. So I believe there's around 4 million human inhabitants in the Arctic of which I think it's estimated that around 1 million inhabitants are indigenous. Uh, and, and the indigenous peoples of the Arctic represent a wide number of different groups and, and cultures. And I think the estimates are saying that uh, indigenous people have lived in the Arctic for around 40,000 years. I think initially it was 30,000 years and, and they've just bumped up that number. So people, humans have been living in the Arctic for a really long time. Now, uh, not all humans who, you know, who live in the Arctic are going to uh, be coastal communities who depend directly on the sea ice, but, but a large number will, especially indigenous communities. So these are people who will be going out onto the sea ice for travel, for hunting, uh, but it's also a really significant part of culture. So because of the unprecedented decline in, in sea ice extent that we've seen over the last four decades, uh, we're, we've already seen really significant impacts on um, the people's way of life, but also the ecosystems that depend on the sea ice. So polar bears, for example, polar bears are um, going hungrier for longer on land because it's the, the ice-free season uh, with which there's, there's no sea ice to walk onto and hunt is getting longer and longer. Another impact is uh, walrus haulouts. So that's an event where tens of thousands of walrus haul out onto a small area of land because there's no sea ice platform for them to go out and rest on. Um, and that can lead to really significant mortality rates in the walrus population. So really significant impacts. And unfortunately, uh, climate simulations are predicting that the Arctic is going to be ice free in the summers by the middle of the century. So this is going to have an unprecedented impact on, on ways of life in the Arctic. So that's a bit of context. Um, I suppose and, uh, it's also... Sorry, go ahead, Dan. Oh, maybe you were about to say, I guess there's also a big climate feedback mechanism that operates there that, right, if you melt away all of the sea ice, that exposes all the darker ocean underneath, which absorbs more sunlight, which is more absorptive because it's darker. And that means that there's greater heat absorption in the poles, right? So there's actually 
a, a feedback called the ice albedo feedback mechanism there. And sorry, maybe you were about to say that, but uh, I was, but you, that... you put it better than I would have. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Well, yeah. yeah I, so... I wanted to mention that the Arctic is really on the front line of climate change mm. because of the, the reasons you've just said. So the Arctic has warmed at about two times the global average due to anthropogenic yeah. global warming because of the feed positive feedback mechanisms that, that you've just described. And, and that's just one of them. And that's one of the ones that I understand the ice albedo mm. feedback, you know, you remove yeah. this white reflective area and replace it with dark ocean and it absorbs more heat. I understand that there, there are more things at play, but you know, I'm not a climate scientist. Mm. So some of these things go a bit over my head. Well, yeah, just let me say that like, it's one of the clear thermometers of climate change to me is to look at, for example, the September Arctic sea ice extent since the dawn of the satellite eras in the, in the seven, dawn of the satellite era in the 70s. And that, that just goes just linearly, just right down. It's really striking, actually, how um, much of that has melted and isn't coming back. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a very one of the clear thermometers of climate change that we have, I would say. Exactly. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, satellites started their measurements in the 70s. So 1979, they started measuring Arctic sea ice. Mm -hmm. So that's just over 40 years now. And um, yeah, in that time, the sea ice extent has, in the summer, has dropped by around 13% per decade. Yeah. And because of these satellite measurements that we have since, uh, since the 1970s, um, we've been slowly building up this wealth of data of the Arctic. So slowly but surely, you know, as time's gone on, we've we've been building up this this um, data set of Arctic sea ice conditions. At the same time, we also have um, reanalysis data. So reanalysis data is provided by modeling agencies that essentially, so the way I under, understand it at least, is that it's a gridded field of some climate or weather variable like temperature or pressure, and it's uh, it's almost like interpolating observations using physics. So you have these sparse observations in different locations, but we also know the laws of physics. So we kind of uh, use that to um, create this complete gridded data set where we have observations of temperature and pressure and et cetera um, yeah. at regular positions. But please uh, correct me, Dan, if, if I've uh, gone wrong there. <laughs> well, just very briefly, I mean, some, some reanalysis products use kind of statistical methods where they will say, well, there's going to be some correlation between these measurements that we will use to make a gridded product by assuming some correlation lengths and correlation timescales. So they'll use a very statistical kind of approach to do some of those reanalysis products. There are other things that fall under that reanalysis product umbrella that do use the laws of physics, like um, the, the state estimates that I like to use, and I'm trying to develop one now. They're they are brought into consistency with a big suite of observations and they obey the laws of physics. They obey heat conservation and momentum conservation and all those things as they're coded up. So yeah, the, certainly some of them do use physics. Some reanalysis products do use physics, but some of them just go straight for the statistical approach and don't worry too much about the, the laws of, of physics. Yeah. And many others, at least in the atmosphere, they take old observations, churn them up into a, a model like the ECMWF, mm. which is the European Centre for Mid Medium Range Weather Forecasting. They use their own model. They take observations from whatever time period you're interested in, put them into the model and the model does its thing and then produces this reanalysis. Mm. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So, I guess <laughs> one way or help, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So, in one way or another, we we have this this data set of gridded data going back to 1979. Um, these are daily observations, more or less. You know, there are gaps here or there, but more or less daily data since 1979. Now, kind of concurrently, since since we've been collecting, you know, as we've been collecting all this data, at the same time, the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning has really uh, taken off. You know, it's it's really um, exploded in terms of the advances that have been made. And one of the classic uh, applications are with images. So uh, um, it is a it is a big cliche in 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 the AI world, but but whatever I'm going to give it anyway. So so think of a data set of images of cats and dogs, and for for some reason or another, your really important um, pet image classification project, you need to classify them into uh, categories cats and dogs, and um, that's something that's been completely solved using. Uh, automated algorithms uh, because of these advances in artificial intelligence. So essentially, these algorithms take in these raw images and they're trained to predict the correct category using a training data set. So it'll be given you know, several thousand, potentially even millions of examples of cats and dogs uh, with the correct label assigned. And it'll be trained to, it'll, it'll essentially learn from this data set how to uh, kind of extract the features from from the, these images of cats and dogs, um, yeah. and it works just like the way the brain processes vision. So the brain processes vision by detecting these really um, you know, low level forms of information right in the retina and early on in the in the processing system by detecting you know points of light and edges, which then get more and more complex. So they get combined to um, moving edges and blobs and shapes and then that can eventually become high you know high level forms of information in the visual cortex at the back of the brain for things like you know plant mug um headphones i'm just naming things in front of me i'm not very imaginative <laughs> um so 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 it's inspired by that same so so these artificial intelligence algorithms are inspired by the way the brain processes yeah. vision it's the same kind of thing going on I'm sorry. I'll explain why I'm smiling. I'm smiling because uh, when you said the cats and dogs example, I'm reminded of another one of my favorite machine learning examples is um, to try to teach an algorithm how to tell the difference between a photo of blueberry muffin versus a photo of a chihuahua. And it's like a hard problem. <laughs> it like struggle, like the algorithms really struggle to differentiate. If you haven't Googled that, Google, um, you know, artificial intelligence, chihuahua, blueberry muffin, and enjoy. Is there also Inclu one for croissants and sloths? Oh, is there? Oh, I don't know. I think yeah, sure. there is something like it that. Should be. <laughs> I, yeah. feel, I feel like the answer is, do you want to eat it or not? And that's why you need a person sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess, and I guess what makes that problem hard is to go back to what you were saying, Tom, is some of the edges are very similar. Some of the shape, basic shapes and colors are very similar. So even though for some reason humans are able to tell the two apart reasonably well, it's, it's, um, that is maybe one case. And maybe there's been a lot of progress in recent years. This example is a couple of years old, but at the time that was a harder problem because the edges and things were so similar. Yeah. And it sounds silly, but these kinds of problems are actually really important because we can tell the difference between a chihuahua and a, and a, 
um, blueberry yeah. muffin, right? I mean, and... when, when you bite into it, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One barks, the other doesn't. It's interesting to hear your, you know, how you're describing your, your actual science, Tom, though, as well, because I did a project a long time ago when I was a postdoc trying to tell the difference between icebergs and sea ice around Greenland. And when the icebergs are frozen in the ice pack, you know, in the sea ice pack, it's actually really hard to do any um, automated tracking and automated mapping of those features. Whereas, and, you know, to our eyes, they very clearly have um, height and you can really clearly tell which one is a berg versus sea ice, but actually trying to automate that. And that was only, you know, that was less than 10 years ago, you know, those problems. So the progress being made is amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a Anita Fowl. Uh, working also at the British Antarctic Survey Artificial Intelligence Lab. That's been a project she's been tackling lately, automatic detection of icebergs and tracking them using satellite data. So she's made some nice progress on that, um, you know, using the information that, that, that you can get from a satellite, the different bands, and decomposing that. And uh, Yeah, but sorry, so Tom, you were saying that the the way that these approaches work is they kind of mimic some of the structures that we have in the brain in terms of multiple layers of abstraction and layers of connections between uh, connections between those layers of abstractions. And you, you train up the relationship between all those layers, which, you know, I guess mathematically you're often fitting a bunch of coefficients to try to minimize some function, right? But maybe I should let, is that the next thing you're going to say? I should just be quiet and let you go. No, no, <laughs> that's good. That's, Thank you. Uh, no, like, no, exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've been digressing a bit, but um, yeah. It's yeah. normal for the show. That's what we do. <laughs> good. Okay. Yeah. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Fitting so, right in. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to kind of bring back all of that to to sea ice, you know, where I started. So so as I said, we've been um, slowly building up this data set of all this information that that can be treated as images, and you know we've just been touching on you know the the likes of sloths and and croissants and muffins etc. It's making me kind of hungry actually. Mm. Um, but um, but. So, so what I've been doing is essentially taking these algorithms, which have been tested in the worlds of cats and dogs, and you know more than that, but but you know kind of traditional notions of images with red, green, and blue channels, etc. And I've been taking that to the world of climate science and specifically Arctic sea ice. So, what I've been working on is developing an Arctic sea ice forecasting AI system that kind of has the same underlying structure as uh, these things I've been describing. But uh, instead of taking in images, it, uh, you know, in, in terms of red, green, and blue images, uh, it takes in these reanalysis fields of climate and weather variables, uh, as well as past sea ice conditions. So these maps of sea ice that we have from satellites. And I've been training this AI to forecast Arctic sea ice maps into the future. So, uh, you know, it takes in these, this past information, processes it up through this series of sequential nonlinear layers, uh, which kind of abstract the information more and more, and then projects that out to the future to, to predict up to six months ahead of sea ice, uh, sea ice maps. Wow, that's really a, lo a long time in the future, actually. It's way further than I thought it would be. That's right, amazing. so actually, uh, potentially I've uh, used some slightly sneaky language. So it predicts six months ahead. <laughs> 
doesn't mean it necessarily does well up to six months ahead. Mm. Okay. So there are there are fundamental <laughs> limits. Caveats then. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, can ask it the question. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Do you think Do you think this is a good time to uh, to ask you Josephine's question, um, Tom? Yes, actually it is, and I was just looking at that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm glad you can see it now. So I think if I hit answer live, maybe that will show up. Oh, so yeah. uh, Josephine Enslin asks, what determines how fast a machine learning algorithm learns? The amount of data that is fed or the quality of the data? Would you like to speak to that one, Tom? Yeah, um, great question, actually. Um, so the quality of the data is a huge one, but I think actually the most significant determining factor is how simple the problem is, so how simple the learning problem is. So learning to detect cats and dogs, you'll actually need fewer examples to train your machine learning system on than a more complex problem, like um, say detecting or, or classifying from a thousand different categories, um, such as you know sidewalk, um, you know, sign, that you get these pictures of roads that, that are often used classically in, in machine learning um, test beds. So that's kind of intuitive, I, I guess. You know, the harder the problem, the more examples you need, the, the slower it's going to learn as well. But you're absolutely right that the quality of data is a big one as well. So um, you know, as, as, as Dan and Ella were saying, the reanalysis fields that I'm using in my research that tell us about the temperature and, and pressure and so on, um, they're imperfect fields. We don't have observations every conveniently spaced every uh, 25 kilometers on a regular grid going back in time, 40 years. You know that would be lovely, but um, we don't have that. So, so there are imperfections and uncertainty in the raw data values, and by all means, that confuses the learning process a little bit, as you might imagine. You know, if if uh, you know humans, if if we were living in a world where um, our visual field was corrupted by a large amount of noise and just randomness and hallucinations, then we would also take a longer time to learn things um, naturally. So it's the same principle. Good. Thanks for that. Okay, I'm going to hit done on that one if that's okay. So I hope that answered your question well, Josephine. Um, and to, to bounce around a little bit, I mean, I don't know if we want to just... We, we do have a question... Uh, oh, good. Josephine says, thank, great, thank you for explaining. Hooray, thank you. Um, we do have a question that I think, Kelly, you could probably speak to. Um, so why don't I read this one out and see what you, what you think. Um, so I'll hit answer live. Whilst completing eight winters in Norway, it was noticeable that the lower snow layers, early snowfall, had a lot of soot attached. And as winter progressed, the snowfall became cleaner is this observation the same in the Antarctic? And once the snow melts, does the soot flush into the seas? And how does this affect the ecosystem? What do you think, Kelly? There are so many things in that question there. Um, yeah. I I would, and, and this I must say the caveat with this is that this is not my field of expertise, particularly. Um, snowfall and snowpack and, and what goes on on annual uh, or seasonal variations in um, maybe pollution, I suppose you'd call it in the snowpack. I would say um, my, I, I, would, I would point to the Arctic for this more actually than the Antarctic. I don't know how much um, 
how much you would see that in the Antarctic because it is so much more isolated by the climate systems, the winds um, and the oceans there that I don't think you would see that, that same effect. Um, I do think you would see it um, in, in the Arctic um, locally where you have a, a source of pollutants. So um, what, yeah, so I think, you know, if you're in Svalbard or Arctic Norway, you would, you would see that. Um, but I think, you know, we, you know, just to go back to my, the project that we're going to work on, because it sort of ties into this, um, you know, we're going to be looking at Greenland, and I, I think there probably isn't enough pollution. Certainly, the place we're going to be going in southeast Greenland is very remote. It's quite far away from any towns, let alone a big town. Um, so I don't think you'd see those kind of pollutants in, in the layers. But what we are trying to do with our project is to look at the runoff, so the melt, and that can be melt that comes from the surface of the ice, and so it's from the snowpack, runs into the ocean. It can be stuff that comes from the surface, runs onto land into a, into a river, into a proglacial river, and then runs into the ocean, um, or it could come from melting, submarine melting of, of a ice face. And um, so you can get a lot of different types of melt. Um, and we will be, when we're on, when we're on our research cruise there, we will be taking samples um, during the sort of six week period that we would be there to look at how much nutrient and melt is coming off at different uh, distances away from the ice, uh, really. Um, and then, so we'll be able to calibrate how much melt water is coming off, what kind of nutrients or pollutants, whatever that you know, packet of water holds. And then the biologists that we're working with will be looking at the primary producers in the water column and, you know, how many, you know, whether there's lots more of them and then when they die, what happens to their bodies and, you know, their sort of fecal pellets of the, as they drop down through the water column. And so they'll be taking samples at different depths to look at how that, all of that um, nutrient material that comes off in the melt is recycled in the water column and then what is deposited and then like recycled back into the water. So although we are interested in sort of these past changes of the glacier and what's happened, we're also interested in the modern um, system. So, we, you know, we need to calibrate what has gone on before by what's going on today. Um, and, you know, of course, what's going on today, you know, how much meltwater is getting into the um, oceans around Greenland, how much, how many nutrients are getting there, what that's doing to the ecosystems, um, is important for predictions for you know what's going to happen to you know fisheries um, and you know and these sort of um, more fragile arctic ecosystems as well so you know we have to look at the modern and we have to understand that so we will be getting some really fantastic new data on that um, but i think if you wanted to look specifically at those pollutants you probably have to go quite close you know to to a pollutant source to see that but you know maybe dan um uh, or, or ella could speak more to how far a atmospheric plume would really um take material away from from these places i mean you know you do get signatures of pollutants far out into into the oceans but that's more to do with ocean circulation rather than than atmospheric plumes um is my understanding i suppose you could talk about the iceland um asphalt maybe it's a good example for that hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really do very much atmospheric transport other than kind of looking at maps of where people say iron deposition is important, like wind-driven mm. iron deposition, because that can fuel primary productivity in the Southern Ocean, since iron is one of the limiting nutrients for productivity down there. So understanding how and when and where the 
winds drive that deposition of iron can be important for setting those patterns of productivity. Um, and they can, I mean, it can be over quite long distances. I mean, you can, um, I don't want to dig myself into a hole here and say something that, that, uh, maybe cause, cause I, it's just kind of papers I look at and then pull information from. It's not really like my area, you know? Um, I mean, but, I can talk about the relative yeah. prevalence of soot in the Antarctic. I mean, it's very, a very pristine sure. atmosphere. Yeah. So in, t in comparison to the Arctic, it's got virtually none because mm. it's separated from any source of pollutants by a great big ocean that surrounds the entire continent. And it's not, got very much land or inhabited land very close by in contrast to the arctic which is surrounded by huge major polluting economies on all sides um whereas the antarctic is just lots of empty ocean instead so there's yeah. not very much getting in and it's also kind of cut off by the the winds and oceans mm. and all the things that, that keep yeah nasties out so while while we're on an oceanographic tilt here why don't we take one of the questions that was sent in by a listener beforehand and there was one that was a little bit more uh ocean ice ecosystem flavored in terms of the question so uh i'm going to give a little bit of a background here just to have it on the recording and just for anybody who doesn't know um so over you know in in recent um in the recent past, this rather large iceberg broke off uh, from Antarctica and traveled quite a ways. And Ella, Ella knows a lot about this and could probably <laughs> speak more about it. Uh, and please do, in a, in a minute, feel free to take over that. But the iceberg uh, recently looked like it was headed towards South Georgia Island. And there was some there were some concerns that the iceberg was going to disrupt local ecosystems were concerned it was going to kind of run aground and you know kind of slam into the the island um and disturbing some of those local e ecosystems and habitats so the, the that's a little bit of context i'm sure ella can elaborate the question from uh joanna oral uh from weymouth dorset is uh what can be that's done that's really to near where i'm from is it <laughs> yeah oh okay yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm from portland dorset so whoever oh. asked that okay cool <laughs> So it's a, uh, what can be done to prevent large icebergs from potentially disrupting ecosystems elsewhere? For example, one similar to the A68 icebergs. What do you think, Emma? What, uh, Ella? Uh, sorry, I work with a lot of people called Emma, so I end up saying that a lot. But uh, what do you think, Ella? same. <laughs> <laughs> one, one letter off in two of your letters. Yeah, you know? totally the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, so A68 carved or broke away from the Larsen Sea ice shelf in we think probably mid-July 2017. Um, I was actually very lucky and I ended up being at the right place at the right time and got the first ever footage of A68 when I was down south in November, December 2017. So we got some incredible footage of flying in the gap between the Larsen Sea ice shelf and the recently carved iceberg but also the reason we were there was to do some science flying so we also have some some cool data which was collected from this area of ocean that's been exposed after a hundred thousand odd years of being there uh, being covered by an ice shelf um so yeah recently in the last kind of three four years 
A68 has made a break for it and ended up doing what lots of icebergs do and sort of gently meandering up towards the north and getting stuck in um, some of the, the currents that circle Antarctica and most notably the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. Um, and it sort of follows the, 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 the line that the current follows, um, as many icebergs often do, and was recently heading towards South Georgia, where people were very worried that it would jeopardise populations of seals and penguins and other charismatic, lovely animals that we all care about. Um, but in a, something of a, a Christmas miracle, I think, it, it splintered into many different fragments and disaster was averted. So <laughs> I don't know. Um, hmm. Icebergs carve all the time. A68 was a megaberg. It was one of the largest in recorded history. So this is why we were particularly worried about this one. And it ended up getting quite close to South Georgia. Mm -hmm. In the end, of course, it did break into several uh, little chunks, which was good for the wildlife. Um, but there isn't, I think the question is, is more relating to how can we prevent that becoming a problem? And mm. I think the short answer is there isn't an easy way to do that. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, carving of breaking away of icebergs is a complete natural process and yeah. we can't really do anything about that. <laughs> no. And honestly, if you have a really big one in the water, I mean, it's usual size comparison is they'll talk about it being the size of whales or, you know, so you're not going to be able to send a ship out and just kind of nudge something that's the size of whales in a different direction. And yeah, so there's not a, not a whole lot that you could do. What if we put rockets on <laughs> the iceberg and fire them in the opposite direction to <laughs> the way it's going? Oh my gosh. Why has nobody so Tom, thought of this before, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so, like Tom, a bad movie plot, doesn't it? Yeah, you just reminded me. I'm going to throw this in as a little uh, meaningless random anecdote just for the, the heck of it. I once got into a conversation with another oceanographer and I've never worked this out. So if anybody feels like working this out, that's fine. It was a really absurd conversation where, um, it was Trevor McDougall, who's a big, big oceanographer in the, in Australia. He was saying, well, what if we attach two gigantic jet engines to the earth and burned all the remaining fossil fuels, um, to power these two jets, by how much would we change the length of a day? <laughs> <laughs> like, so if anybody wants to do that back of the envelope calculation surely it would um, depend in which you know, direction actually, yeah yeah that's right yeah are you are you wanting to make the days longer or shorter no. longer <laughs> i think yeah you want more longer. more sunlight hmm i think Wait, i just want more hours in the day always <laughs> always more helpful <laughs> uh reminds me wasn't there an old superman movie where he, he, they accomplished time travel by like pushing on the planet and making it spin at a different rate. And that was supposed to make time go faster, <laughs> which of course it doesn't, but you know, that was the, the understanding at the, the in, in that particular script, Hollywood script. Enough about that though. Let's get back to. Uh, I absolutely, stuff. yeah, I absolutely don't want to go anywhere near that question, but I do want to um, mm -hmm. mention sort of as an add on to what Ella was saying about the icebergs, you know, I think, yeah, the chances of these, yeah, iceberg carving is a natural process that happens all the time. Um, and uh, the chances of one of these great big bergs um, getting into, you know, if you actually look around the Antarctic, it's a, it is a great big ocean with a few islands there. So the, the chances of it actually sort of, 
doing long-term damage um, mm. to somewhere like that where there are people and where we, uh, you know, maybe some of these colonies are, you know, is, is probably quite slim. Um, but I think we do need to remember that, um, you know, icebergs dragging through the seafloor and touching down is also a natural process. And we have scientists at Bass and, and elsewhere at UK universities that study how um, life sort of recolonizes those scoured out mm -hmm. patches. Um, and it does it really quickly, remarkably quickly, actually. Um, and, it's, and it's actually quite an interesting phenomenon if you sort of reset the bar, then how, what goes in first and how does the ecosystem rebuild itself? Um, so that that's a really interesting um, issue. But I think, you know, if you want to think about protecting the um, Southern Ocean ecosystems or the polar ecosystems more, you know, there are things called marine protected areas. Um, there are some around South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands at the moment. There's one in the Ross Sea and there are plans to have these marine protected areas um, around more of Antarctica. Um, mm -hmm. And basically what that does is stops people going in and fishing too much um, and taking out some of the um, primary producers or too many of the fish stock that the ecosystem can't recover. Um, so if you want to protect the environment or if we as a, as a society want to protect the polar environment, the way to do that is probably to get these marine protected areas, um, you know, built in and set, set in stone rather than worry about um, one or two icebergs but don't worry because scientists are looking at what happens when the icebergs touch down and what happens mm. to the life afterwards mm -hmm. you know sometimes you can release a lot of nutrients back into the the water if you dig it up with an iceberg too so it's not all doom and gloom oh that's nice yeah thank you kelly for bringing us back to science and a bit, <laughs> bit of a bit of class that was appreciated it's just because i, I have nothing to say about the other about the other problem <laughs> I did want to mention that we, some of our British Antarctic Survey colleagues are piloting some gliders, some semi-autonomous vehicles uh, around the, some of the iceberg fragments to take measurements about the uh, oceanographic conditions. Uh, Alex Brearley, I believe, is working on that. Paul Abrahamson has, has had a role in that. He's a, a cruise leader. He's been leading a cruise kind of in that area. So yeah, there are some best scientists who are currently investigating the conditions around some of those fragments, which is, is cool. So hopefully stay tuned for more information about that. Okay, good. So why don't we tilt back towards the kind of machine learning questions that we have, tilt more kind of towards Tom's area a little bit. And there are a couple of questions that might help us integrate the two a little bit. The two worlds of you know observational data not just ship-based, but kind of all observational data and machine learning. Uh, so let me see here. What should we start with? So there is a question. I'm just going to go with this one from uh, Amin. Um, and uh, it's. I'm going to read it out to you now. I'll do answer live. I am coming from a machine learning background, but I have no experience in remote sensing, you know, detecting things from afar using, um, I guess, usually radiation. I want to do climate research using satellite data, the data part, but I don't know where to start learning about using satellite data in my research. Could you please inform us about good sources available to learn about using satellite data for researchers like Amin? What do you think, Tom? I know you've been using some satellite data, and I, I think it was, I mean, totally correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you had done much with satellite data before. I, I think this was an early, uh, so you, you had to get up to speed as well. Yes. So th this might be fresh on your, your mind of how to go from zero to, you know, using satellite data. 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I would love to save people time with that as well because it's never a joy of machine learning research to um, uh, end up spending 90% of your actual time uh, digging the data and then wrangling said data. Um, but so I mentioned era five. Uh, did I mention the word era five? So I mentioned reanalysis data. So that's the um, the, the gridded products. So these two D two um, D fields of uh, climate and weather variables, and that can be an excellent place to start. Um, and one of the kind of main providers of, of these reanalysis fields, uh, or the, the main data sets, is called ERA five. So E R A five, and you can download uh, that data for free. Um, I think you just make an account on on, on the, the Copernicus web website, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it depends. Yeah, it depends what kind of climate research you want to do. So the CI data I work with is also freely available, and that's provided by OCSAF, um, O S I S A F. Um, often, I would say a piece of advice for for you know starting to use with whatever product you you do end up deciding to use as a machine learning researcher is um, firstly you don't need to be an expert in in the product because our algorithms are supposed to be domain independent and be able to learn the relationships of interest. Um, of course, it helps to have experts uh, depending on, on what type of research you're doing with it. But go through some user guides. Um, that's That would be my my kind of nugget of, of advice for people going out and using these data sets for the first time. Um, it's quite boring, but um, can be really important as well. In terms of quantifying the levels of uncertainty and the limitations in the data. Thanks, Tom. We've got another kind of methods question. This is from Denise Landau in Colorado, which uh, I lived in Colorado for a couple of years. It's really beautiful. It's really my favorite state, I think. So the question is, for those with engineering backgrounds, uh, who is it that's developing the cutting edge tools, I guess the cutting edge machining, machine learning tools? How can we support companies who are assisting BAS? So what do you think, Tom? Where are some of those developments coming from? I guess this is thinking about the tools that are available to us and where are those tools coming from? Because I think it's fair to say that we do we do a little bit of development, but honestly, a big part of machine learning and climate science right now and earth system science is just using a lot of the tools that are already out there with respect to our specific data sets, we don't necessarily need to always invent a new technique to do our science. You know, often the tools are, are there and we just need to get it to work with our particular problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in terms of companies, uh, there are a few big tech companies who, who have their own research labs who are really pushing forward the field of artificial intelligence and, and deep learning uh, as well in particular. Um, so, you know, the, these are some of the big tech companies, uh, don't, uh, kind of household names, Google, Apple, Microsoft. Um, one of the companies that is doing really cool research is DeepMind in London that, uh, they're, they're, uh, very much a household name for, for machine learning researchers. Um, but actually a, a lot of, a lot of the advances in machine learning and deep learning are, are done in universities in research groups and yeah Dan's right to say that we are we 
you know, when you apply a, a, an existing algorithm to a new problem, there's always new questions that arise and, and new constraints and, and often um, you know, new opportunities for the design of, of said algorithm can arise from that. And that is the case in the AI lab. But Dan's right that we are largely taking off the shelf, essentially off the shelf algorithms that have that are domain independent. You can apply them with cats and dogs. You can apply them with climate data. Um, and the machine learning research community is a really global, um, global interdisciplinary cohort of people. So there, I wouldn't really say there's a specific company that is really creating all of the, you know, has a kind of monopoly on, on knowledge about machine learning. And we, I personally collaborate with people from machine learning researchers from a variety of institutions, research institutions around, um, around the UK and, and Europe. Um, but I wouldn't really name one specific company that's that's um, doing everything. Yeah, the uh, you mentioned some university departments. So the University of Cambridge in the you know, engineering department, I think it's mechanical engineering, right? It's the department they do a lot of work in Gaussian processes. So and, uh, uh, yeah, not, 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 the, not mechanical engineering. It's not mechanical. part of the, I guess you could say it's part of the information engineering uh, okay, area okay. within the department right okay. no i don't know the departments very well and how they're structured over on over i only there, know but, because yeah. i'm a alumnus <laughs> yeah yeah that's right so i think that's there are lots and lots of departments like that who have their specialty they have a f professor or two or three who are you know very much in that kind of algorithm development world and algorithm application world so let's see uh we've got another one for tom this might be uh relatively quick possibly this one's from josephine it's another one i saw that you used antarctic ice data to train your arctic sea ice machine algorithm can the algorithm detect by itself that's that it's looking at the antarctic and not the arctic data what do you think yeah nice so someone's actually looking at my twitter <laughs> <laughs> um so um yeah i think it can so um so I think it comes down to, um, again, just really flogging a dead horse here, but the, the cats and dogs example, it has to learn to classify cats and dogs. So as, as you mentioned, my um, CIS forecasting AI, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing this is coming from my tweet where I mentioned that um, I've downloaded Antarctic data now to train my, my Arctic CIS forecasting AI. And actually, as we speak, it's, it's training on the BAS um, computer which which is fun so we'll see soon what the results of that are but it's it's being trained concurrently on both arctic and antarctic data and, and my kind of hypothesis is that this will only be beneficial for its performance even if we only care about its performance in the arctic because it's going to force it to learn more general things about sea ice uh, and its relationships to uh, the atmospheric and oceanic processes that it does have vision of because it's it's not seeing one fixed viewpoint of the world over and over again. It also gets to see the other pole. Um, so I guess now it's it's not an Arctic sea ice forecasting AI anymore. It's it's now a, a polar sea mm. ice forecasting AI. Nice. Thanks, Tom. We've got one for Kelly. A question for Kelly. You mentioned that your cruise to Greenland. Uh, you mentioned your cruise to Greenland. Does this mean that Bass is increasing its presence in the Arctic? Or is that to do with your specific project? 
Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say it, what I was talking about there was um, was a funded uh, project to Greenland and to the Arctic. Um, but I would say, um, you know, we have a lot of people at Bass working in the Arctic um, on a lot of different topics. Um, and we have recently formed our own sort of working group and we, you know, sort of strive together to make the best of sort of funding opportunities that come our way. Um, I think the nature of working in the Arctic means that, you know, you tend to um, collaborate a lot more with a lot of the universities because there are so many different players in the Arctic um, versus sometimes the, the Antarctic community and that we end up, you know, it ends up being spread around a bit more, I would say, sort of Arctic research. But I think, you know, with the Sir David Attenborough coming online um, and, you know, the period of time that she will have in the northern summer to do Arctic research, um, you know, I hope that we will see sort of uh, more consistent um, Arctic research, you know, during that during that available time slot on the SDA as well for, for um, marine science, for sure. Um, but there is definitely a, a happy, positive momentum movement at Bass to do more joined up work in the Arctic. I would say, and, and my project is one example, you know, we have four different science teams working together, um, you know, with different disciplines on, on one project, which actually is is pretty great. Yeah, and just to, to add to that, we are called the British Antarctic Survey, so that's always going to be a part of what we do, but we kind of, as an organization, don't take that to be like a fence to keep us in to only doing Antarctic stuff. We, if it looks like we can make useful contributions to Arctic science or North Atlantic science, or, um, you know, there, there's even people who've done studies on risk and like supply chain risk. And Scott Hosking has done studies with collaborators looking at, um, you know, the energy generation in Egypt, for example, and how that's reliant on air conditioning, which is very, very much not polar. Um, but, basically we have a lot of expertise in different directions and we try to find good ways to apply that expertise to different problems. So I think that's been one of the really interesting things about working at Bass is seeing how, yes, Antarctic for sure, for sure, definitely that's going to be a part of the story, but it's not the only thing that we contribute to. Uh, yeah. So I've got, I'm kind of taking a look at the questions and trying to plan, you know, what the rest of the episode is going to look like, but let's just take a minute How's everybody doing? How are you all feeling? We've been going for an hour now. This has been awesome. I'm really enjoying it. Everybody all right? Yeah, great. Yeah, need super a break? fun. Anybody need a break? Are we good? <laughs> I'm good. No, yeah. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. I really I wanted to give a shout out to all of our attendees right now because um, I don't know about you all, but I do have a bit of Zoom burnout just from having a lot of you know Zoom meetings over the past year. So thanks so much to our attendees for showing up and being here and spending some time with us. I really appreciate it because, uh, yeah, it, it uh, well, maybe they're feeling differently, but I'm actually taking next week off. I'm going to like try to properly take it off and like not have meetings and not, um, you know, like do work. So I've kind of tried to make a somewhat promise to myself that if I do anything nerdy next week, it's just going to be for fun. It's only for, you know, the kind of nerdy stuff that I will, will enjoy. Uh, yeah. You deserve it. <laughs> Thanks. I kind of think that this kind of talk, though, is it, this kind of Zoom meeting is what I call a fun Zoom meeting because we're yeah. basically 
talking about science that we all do and actually just learning from each other um you know sort of everyone here does something slightly different and mm -hmm. you can see the synergies you know straight away and and so you just got to talk science for for an hour and a bit rather than attending a a meeting where there's a lot of admin or other yeah. things going on so actually this is this is a nice meeting thanks dan and ella Oh, yeah. Thanks very much to all of you for coming along, Kelly, Tom, and Ella. It sounds like we're wrapping up. We're not wrapping up. There's more <laughs> There's more to do. But I did want to just pause for a second. Yeah. Instead of just kind of steamrolling ahead with, with everything. As a quick aside, we talked about icebergs. Um, have you all seen this iceberg simulator? It's um, yeah. It's got this yes. URL. It's joshdata.me. It's called Iceberger, where you draw an iceberg to see how it will float. And I'm going to, I'm going to see if you can see my screen. Obviously, if you're listening to this on the podcast later, you're not going to see this, but go to, go to joshdata.me to see what we're talking about. So I've got it on my little iPad here where, you know, I've drawn an iceberg and you can see that it's nice and stable. And from what I understand, this is by, uh, inspired by a tweet by at glacial mag is what it says on the site. So from, from what I understand, I'm going to try to draw it here that it's inspired by the fact that in those kind of cartoon depictions of icebergs, that that's actually physically not great because that's an unstable configuration of an iceberg. If you've got, you know, the top bit just sticking out and you almost have kind of a triangle shape below it, you know, that that's an unstable kind of configuration. So you can prove that to yourself by, you know, making an iceberg like that, that kind of has the, oh, did I, but I probably made it too nice here. So actually, I don't know why I'm trying to do this on the video. It's not going to work, but... <laughs> It's worth it's worth perfectly trying. stable you know, iceberg off the bat. I, I did. So here's another one that um oh there we go, there we go. So I don't know if you can see it, but it's kinda of, that that one's also kind of stable. I'm not doing this right. You just need to, like, to draw one a, that's the you know, the shape of a cat or a dog. Yeah, that's right. Or, or a, a blueberry or a muffin. <laughs> yeah, oh <laughs> it's a blueberry yeah, they're a blueberry mush, muffin shape. Well it looks terrible, but maybe you can see oh, how the iceberg yeah. is like tilting up going up to the surface. But anyway, that's just a brief plug interlude for that. I actually um, saw a really cool talk. It was the UK Antarctic Science Conference last mm -hmm. week, and there was a lot of talks from all different, you know, uh, glaciologists and marine scientists and biologists and atmospheric scientists. And, and I saw a cool talk about how they model um, the big icebergs that come off of Antarctica. And exactly like Ella was saying, you know, they sort of go follow this big current that goes around the Antarctic um, continent. But he was modeling how the icebergs break up. And, uh, you know, so when they start to lose size and, you know, sort of the, the biggest ones he was basically modeling. And he was saying that, you know, they break off these tiny chunks for the longest time. And um, so, so actually how the meltwater and all those sort of nutrients and everything that's in the icebergs gets into the ocean, you know, not much happens for a long time and it sort of keeps moving around, moving around. And then it gets into that current that goes up towards South Georgia and, you know, and then it starts, then they really start to break up. So he said that they, they can actually do that pretty well now. So if you had, I guess if you had a big iceberg carving from Antarctica, you know, breaking away and moving off from Antarctica in the future, they could probably have a pretty good guess of, where it would end up and where it would put all of its melt into the ocean, which is pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. So I, I was looking, we've got a couple of questions that could get kind of heavy. So why don't we do those <laughs> and then we'll try to end on a lighter note. Uh, you know, cause you don't want to end the podcast on like a, like a heavy, heavy note necessarily. 
So the this question is from Stella Roberts from North Wales. And the question is, how optimistic are you about our climate improving? So I don't know if anybody wants to start on that one. I mean, I, I can talk for a minute, I guess, and uh, maybe then you all can kind of jump in. So it's, it's a hard question, and it is one that does get asked to people who work in... Oh, are we frozen? It looks like you all are frozen. Hold on. Are we having an issue right now? Am I? You're not frozen to me. You're not frozen to me. No, me neither. Okay. Okay. Are we all, are we all back now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. It said that my connection was unstable, but maybe we're fine. Okay. So in terms of, am I optimistic? I think the way that where I've landed in terms of my personal philosophy is I try to be um, a pragmatic optimist. That's where I, the groove that I try to sit in. So uh, that position, one way to phrase it, I guess, is that, well, things could always get worse. <laughs> so in terms of climate, you know, we could just keep emitting and keep emitting and keep emitting carbon, putting more and more of it into the atmosphere, increasing the amount of you know radiation that's directed down to the surface and increasing the energy content of the climate system and further acidifying the oceans so it kind of always makes sense to take action and to reduce emissions and to um you know try to to change the way that our kind of carbon economy works and to I'm hesitating slightly because you all are frozen again. I'm having some. We're just pondering really, really carefully what you're saying, Dan. Um, hold on, I'm going to try something. I hope this doesn't just. I hope this doesn't. Oh, it seems like stop we're everything. all. It seems like we're fine and Dan. We're fine. It's just Dan. You're, you're the one with the problem here. Over to this other <laughs> network. Got a one-way communication channel. <laughs> well, okay. Well, maybe maybe uh, maybe one of you two would like to to pick up where Dan. Um, froze. Well, uh, Alan, did you give a talk on you guys are feeling in optimism. terms of optimism? So I think I glitched out a bit there. No? Oh yeah, did you just ask Ella? I so now Dan and Ella are frozen for me, Tom. We've lost our co-hosts. Oh no, there we go. She's back. She's back. Everyone, she's back. back. She's back. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, you were going to say something about giving a talk on climate optimism. I have done that I, I, no i was saying i thought you did that so <laughs> yes. surely you are well placed in this for this question yeah i can i regularly give the same talk about what um what gives me hope and to be quite honest it's not necessarily about the science so much and like dan i think i'm a i'm a pragmatic optimist in that it's not a binary choice between climate change that's devastating and is going to kill us all versus no climate change that's not going to have any impacts because it's a spectrum, it's a sliding scale. Any climate, The more climate changes, the worse the impacts are going to be. So it follows logically that the more we do to mitigate that, the better it will be. So I think it's always, as Dan was saying, worth tackling it in some way. Um, and the things that give me reason to be hopeful are complete, uh, well, are more to do with, with politics and action and the way that society is changing and 
you know, so many companies are now pledging to be net zero, whether or not that will actually man be manifested in, in real meaningful cuts and changes will is, you know, yet to be seen. Governments are all pledging to be net zero. The reemergence of um, China and the US as big players in the climate negotiation world, that's a really huge thing. Um, everyone's talking green because as soon as the big players start talking green and saying that they're going to do it. Everyone else wants to jump on board. And that's great. I cannot stress that enough. I do not mind bandwagonism as long as it's in the right direction. Um, and the explosion of protest movements, you know, the climate strikes, um, the huge movement and transition of so many different parts of society towards campaigning and demanding change and demanding that companies take action and governments take action and that we all take action. I think it's it's really heartening to see how much things have changed. And if you even just take the example of plastic, see, consider five years ago before Blue Planet 2 aired, um, how many people would have been aware or would have carried a, one of our reusable water bottles that we were comparing earlier? Um, how many people would have had one of those? Now everyone's got one. And it just shows you how quickly things can change if something catalyzes it and you forget that sometimes. So just imagine where we'll be in 10 years. I am, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Ella. And I think, um, you know, what brings it home to me a lot is, um, is having a sort of primary school aged child and knowing how aware she is of her environment and the environment, the global environment. Um, you know, so for her, you know, she never, never learned to rely on plastics in the same way. You know, she she doesn't want, you know, she she doesn't really believe in single-use plastics and she she doesn't really understand why that was ever a thing. But that <laughs> that complete shift, you know, we're we're older, but not that old. But you know, that complete shift in mindset. You know, it's actually happened over a, a relatively short period of time. Um, and so, you know, I see, you know, her as the next generation, that actually their goals will be uh, totally different from ours. And, you know, and I think with, you know, yeah, new technologies and the pledges that the governments are making, that they are achievable. Um, the other the other one that sort of gives me hope, and this is quite, uh, it sounds a bit weird to say, but, you know, we've all sort of struggled through the last sort of year and a bit with, with coronavirus, but but um, science has taken a real leading role in, you know, affecting change and providing data and providing evidence for, for what we should be doing. And I think that's sort of, um, sort of reawakened people to science and what, um, you know, what our results can help with. And, you know, I think those two things in combination with, you know, sort of what the governments are doing and, yeah, and you know, like so the US and China recommitting to, um, to climate policies. You know, I think those things give me hope for the future that maybe even five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to put my finger on, which is quite interesting. Yeah, it's ama always amazing to see how much kids know about climate. If I compare myself age eight, to the kind of eight-year-olds who are answering it. Like, sometimes I give talks at schools and you ask a question like, does anyone know what climate change is? And they all look at you like, obviously, like, who are you? And they'll give you this textbook <laughs> definition about anthropogenic climate change and who's causing it and how and what greenhouse gases are. And all right, well, I guess I'll go home then. 
my job my job is done <laughs> my work it's is done here. it's amazing it's it's quite honestly spectacular thanks for taking over there <laughs> when my internet just dropped out have you been made the host now basically ella is that what happened Can you i don't see know i have that? all the power all the power all the power <laughs> someone was made a host someone was a Hollywood host for a moment um, oh were you really? afraid I was the responsibility, but oh, no. I think it then said that Dan was was reinstated as host. So I was host for about a fraction of a second. It was thrilling. Oh. The responsibility. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah, I can see the attendees now again in the questions and things. Well, did uh, every did, did Tom? Did you have a chance to respond to that one? I wanted to make sure everybody had a chance to respond to that one if they wanted to. But right, uh, I mean, no. yeah, I mean, not. Not much more than to add from those brilliant responses. Uh, also, the youth give me a huge amount of hope. Um, one one thing I, that that, um, that that I've been quite happy about lately is how we've seen that renewable energies have completely um, dwarfed their expected levels of output. Um, so, if you look back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, the the output that that was predicted to come from renewable energies is um, was much lower than what it actually is. So I think that's that's a good sign. Um, one 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 other one other thing that that I that I really like is how there's a kind of greater consciousness in both the science community but also outside the science community of the interconnectedness of planets. So the um, you know, the biosphere interacts with the atmosphere interacts with the ocean on all these different scales. And it's like, I feel like people are starting to have a, a, a greater sense of the uh, you know, deep interconnectedness of, of our planet and, and life on it. Um, so it's like we're leaving this compartmentalized way of seeing the world. Uh, so this is almost a kind of philosophical transition that seems to be slowly but surely happening, which, which I'm happy about. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a different way of being aware of the world and of being aware of that that connectedness. And it uh, takes a lot of rewiring and a lot of changing things out in the cultural space. So it's going to take some time, but we kind of need to do it in a hurry. This is um, this is there's this book called The Future Earth out that uh, came out recently, where the whole project was to kind of imagine what the next few decades are going to look like. Um, and the Eric Holthaus is the author. And his point was that, well, we need that imagination. We need the ability to imagine what that transition into this new, more interconnected world where we have a different energy system, where we have maybe a greater level of interconnected responsibility and awareness of how we affect each other. That uh, and that was his project was basically to write a book along those lines to try to inspire that imagination. And uh, Ella and I talked with uh, Mika Tosca, who's doing this work at this intersection of art and science, which is really fascinating because one of the explicit objectives there is how do we engage the human imagination and to help us like imagine actually different futures because that's such an important part of the creative process that we need to get from where we are now to whatever this different future is going to look like. So, you know, art can potentially play a really important role in this transition. Uh, just because we're humans who have imaginations, then they need to get sparked and fed and inspired in some way so that we can start making some of these changes. So the 
the science is largely there. And even a lot of the technology and engineering is largely there. So there's many other social and artistic and, uh, you know, elements that kind of need to, um, carry that momentum forward. I guess you could say, we'll keep doing our science back here. We're not going to stop doing that. And, but, uh, we're, we're certainly not the only part of this. We're certainly just kind of the, a very, uh, you know, we're, we're just one part of this kind of long chain of things that need to happen. So we don't, why don't we go back to some other questions here? So we've got, uh, Josephine, uh, insulin and josephine asks this is one that i think is could get get us talking about it's interesting would you say that artificial intelligence replaces the need for oceanography observations or does it supplement um who wants to speak to that anybody feel i've got something to say about that but um, i'm sure yeah. kelly and um well, what, yeah, why don't you go first? Because it, because she mentioned artificial AI first. Um, I'd be interesting. I'm, I'm happy to talk to that, but um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you say first as well. So let's both talk. Yeah, well, um, I definitely think uh, it won't play a role of replacing observations. So Kelly, don't worry. Uh, I'm not automating your, your job away. <laughs> Take a breath of relief. Um, one, yeah, so supplement, definitely supplement. I vote. Um, that AI will supplement uh, oceanographic observations. And actually this is quite a well-timed question because um, I'm slowly moving on to a, a new contract, so a new kind of science problem, but I'm gonna be working with Dan on this as well, which is based around um, leveraging these gridded data sets that we have, but also leveraging surface observations and sensors and measurements. So kind of blending the scales between them in order to inform placement of measurements or, or weather stations and things like that. And um, there's been some some actual early research into this already that I'm hoping to build on, um, and, and it's been really promising so far. So um, I think th the idea goes that you can kind of try to map from gridded data sets to observations, so point-based observations like uh, from a ship, for example, and you can learn where the uncertainty is highest, which could inform um, Kelly's lovely ship to to go to go to that place and take measurements there. Um, so so I can see that as a as a big example of supplementing the the process of of doing science and collecting measurements. You know, where AI is really here, it's not it's not here to replace any science. I don't think it can do that. Um, but it's here to to um, be there as a as a technology that can improve our ability to do science. So. That's the way I see it. What do you think, Kelly? Yeah, I, I think you're, I mean, yeah, I'm no expert in AI, but I, I think I, I think I agree with you that it that it's supplementary. And I think it can come, you know, sort of the way you described it just then, where you have the AI sort of maybe highlighting an area of uncertainty or sort of problem areas uh, for different data sets where you could then go out and make measurements. Um, but I think it could go the other way around as well, that, you know, you, you take your measurements and then you start to make your products and then the AI does well, like, you know, so, so and then the AI says, well, you know, we still have this gap or, you know, the process changes here, you know, something is changing here and we don't know why. And so I think you could end up, you know, sort of in a, a in a circle where the, the two are complementing each other. Um, so I, yeah, I, I would, yeah, I would hope that they would, <laughs> that they could work hand in hand. Um, I guess what I was going to sort of lead on, which maybe is a slightly different question is, um, is, you know, is that we've been thinking about different autonomous 
um, vehicles and instruments, which is not the same as AI, I realize that, but it is, a, you know, it's, it's a way of sort of having instruments operating almost independently, although you might tell them where to go um, whilst you're doing something else. And, you know, is that a replacement for um, people in the field um, or people in a ship collecting observations? And I think, um, you know, I think what autonomous instruments will let us do um, will let us go off to remote places and places that either a big ship um, may not be able to go or a small smaller vessel may not be able to go because um, because the water is too shallow and we don't know what's down there and a big ship won't take the risk to go there or because ice conditions are too poor um, or you want to send an autonomous vehicle underneath some floating ice you know a floating ice shelf you know so that's places we can't access in the sort of traditional ship-based approach but what a sort of if you can imagine in the future maybe 10 years or so having a, a fleet of vehicles so you could have 10 autonomous vehicles of different types and you could have some that you are transiting down to Antarctica and you drop on the way because you want them to just sit in the water and bob around making their measurements. Um, but then you would deploy the other ones when you get closer to the ice to areas you can't really get to in a ship. So you sort of have a fleet of, of vehicles um, operating, doing sort of uh, measuring various bits and bobs. But then you'd have sort of the people based activity, you know, where you need those sort of very complicated lab procedures or analyses going on or, um, or even acquisition processes, you know, that stuff would have to be still done on a ship with people. But you could become more efficient or, you know, that is the hope is that we'd become more efficient and be able to access a lot more areas than we would do, um, you know, in, in the current system as more autonomous vehicles and you know, marine robotics, you know, come online, which is really yeah. exciting. Yeah, we have uh, Maria Fox is a researcher who's joining the British Antarctic Survey, the Artificial Intelligence Lab. And uh, this is something she's been working on is a kind of scheduler that, as you were saying, Kelly, can kind of schedule jobs among a bunch of different autonomous platforms and sort of suggest places for them to go and you know routes for them to take. So it's, it's exciting. There is somebody at Bass working on that kind of problem, and it'll be interesting to see uh, where where that goes over the next few years yeah what's also exciting is that um is that uh you know we we have just bass has just won funding to buy um something called an auto autonomous surface vehicle which is something that you would deploy from the ship and go off and do some surveying you know way over there somewhere while the main ship's doing something else but but on the surface and it can it has quite long range so it go tens of kilometers away from you and and still be working and um, and what's quite exciting about that is that as communications um, improve and our sort of satellite systems and communications in the polar regions improve is that you could have people sitting at home in Cambridge directing that so you don't need the people on the ship even to do that and that would allow you to bring in um, maybe a whole group of people that don't necessarily have the opportunity to travel to the poles or or, or can't for some reason um, you know but it would bring them in and be able to let them direct science, you know, sitting from, you know, probably a lab somewhere in your hometown. So that's, um, that's pretty cool too. Something I really wanted to ask both of you actually is what the most exciting things are that you can see happening soon in your field. So whether that's oceanography or, you know, surface autonomous vehicles or the amazing and exciting new questions you could apply your techniques to. Um, is there one thing that you guys are particularly excited by, or maybe you can give us a few things? 
Oh, I feel like I just wasted all my good answers. On Darn. The maybe, maybe, maybe Tom can go first, and I'll think about. Um, yeah, I think about fine. a good answer. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, um, what I've been describing so far in my work is um, really so. So, so on the there's a spectrum, right? There's uh, on the one end you have this pure kind of physical um, bottom-up approach of modeling and, and pure science on the other end of the spectrum is this kind of pure statistical, um, pure AI applications that don't have any embedded notions of of um, the laws of physics. They, you know, they perhaps try to learn them um, from data, but that is one extreme. What I'm really interested in is about the convergence of the two. So uh, the movement towards these hybrid machine learning um, physical models. Um, and that's really kicking off at the you know as we speak so so this is really novel and and i think has really huge implications um i don't think i can give just one thing so i'll i'll mention it would be really cool to see uh climate models which have um really computationally expensive aspects of them to run which really hinders their ability to um to you know, run many times and produce many simulations of, of our planet at a high resolution uh, in order to answer really crucial questions about how the planet responds under different scenarios and the roles of these different phenomena in the climate. If we can replace those computationally expensive bits or at least speed them up using AI methods, then we'll be able to run these simulations of the climate much more quickly and more readily answer those questions. And I see climate simulations and these climate models as such a crucial uh, test bed in, in the realm of geoscience that uh, I'm, that's one of the things that I'm really excited to see. Like clouds. I mean, I'm only ever going to put my own research <laughs> interest in there, but sure. cloud microphysics are, you know, the, the sticking point for, they're the number one source of uncertainty in most of our projections of future climate change because they're so difficult to, hmm. to simulate. And I mean, if you could apply some kind of machine learning techniques to parameterize or, yeah, I hate that word, but to yeah. to understand what's going on in clouds in yeah. computer language, then that would be amazing. Uh, so you've made me idea. excited about it. Good. I mean, there's actually a PhD, student, there's a PhD student working on that exact thing at the Bass AI lab. Great. You've that, already so. thought about it. Wonderful. <laughs> Don't need me. <laughs> <laughs> well we need you to like you know implement it and then tell us if it makes any sense or not like if it's doing you know what you expected to do or if it's behaving in a very strange fashion because we absolutely still need all that domain expertise to keep us grounded to our you know scientific understanding of these these areas you uh you, you can't you know necessarily just do only ai research you also need people to understand conservation of energy and conservation of momentum and who have a robust understanding of what the literature tells us about what clouds do in the climate system. So yeah, you absolutely need all of that. Why don't we knock out a couple more questions and then I've actually got some wrap up questions that we could go through that I, I typically like to go through on the podcast. So one of them um, is from Alejandro de la Maza in Chile and Alejandro asks, have you noticed a historical trend in the southern annular mode? So let me give you a little bit of context. The climate system, which includes the atmosphere and the ocean and the 
ice component of it as well. It features all these modes of change. They change over different timescales. There are different patterns of change. And the southern annular mode is this particular sloshing back and forth of atmospheric mass in the southern hemisphere. And the it's, it's an index. It's a single number that has to do with a pressure difference, a pressure difference between two different observing stations. And the reason that's interesting physically is pressure tells you how much atmospheric mass is sitting on top of you at any given point. So if there's a pressure difference between two observing stations, it tells you there's a different amount of mass kind of sitting on top of these two observing stations. And that mass can slosh back and forth. It's driven by a host of other factors, and these modes of variability all kind of interact with each other in a very complicated way. So over the past several decades, scientists have observed a trend in the southern annular mode. It has been shifting towards a more positive phase, and a more positive phase of the SAM, as it's called, that corresponds to a an increase in the wind speed around the mid-latitudes, and also a poleward shift in the latitude of those jets. So the winds around Antarctica have been getting faster and have been getting closer and closer to Antarctica, kind of drawing in um, in its spatial extent over time. And that's driven by ozone depletion for one thing, but it's also driven by greenhouse gas forcing as well. And um, the ozone part is interesting because you know, if the ozone hole continues to, if it does improve, if it does close up over the next few decades, that component of the forcing will will go away. But the greenhouse gas-driven component of forcing, the, the increase in the southern annular mode, that will still be there. So our kind of current understanding is the SAM is, has been increasing over the last several decades, and it looks like it will probably continue to increase because of that greenhouse gas forcing. Um, and that, that actually ties, I did a little bit of work in this area in terms of how the ocean responds to that. Um, this was kind of my dissertation thing of just showing, using a couple different methods that the, uh, it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but you got to quantify it and show it. Like the ocean's going to take a really long time to respond to these shifts. The ocean has this very long response time scale. So the, uh, that positive trend is going to keep increasing the, some aspects of ocean circulation or, uh, over the next several decades and, and beyond possibly. So yeah, that's that's one question that came into us, and that's actually so. Thanks for, for that question, Alejandra. I hope that answers uh, your question. And actually, I just wanted to take a second to a few people have indicated where they're from. Uh, Chile. We've got folks from Cambridge here locally. We've got folks from Cyprus, which is cool. Uh, Imperial College down in London, Turkey. We've got uh, two from Turkey, Spain, Saint Neots, which is here in the county. Sydney, Australia, Portugal. So thanks so much to all of our attendees for signing up and for uh, joining us. It's really cool to have you all here with us from all over the planet. I really appreciate that. Uh, we've got one more question from Philip Spencer. Question for Tom. This is back to the IceNet stuff. So when using IceNet, has the analysis of time periods since the first data shown a difference in the hotspots or areas responsible for the changes in the in the Antarctic sea ice sheet cover. Um, there's a few different things going on there. I guess, so the Antarctic ice sheet is the is the ice that's sitting on Antarctica, which isn't what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the ice, the sea ice, which is sitting in the ocean. There's another term you might hear sometimes, the ice shelf. An ice shelf is a floating tongue of ice 
that is still connected to Antarctica. It's still connected to the ice sheet, but it's kind of protruding out and floating on top of the ocean there. So there's a, an ocean cavity beneath it. So I guess this question, you could interpret it as, um, have there been shifts in the areas responsible for that changing uh, sea ice? And I guess you've, you've looked more in the Arctic, so maybe yeah. um, if, you, if you maybe focus on that, I suppose. But what, would you like to say something about that question? Yeah, so I can kind of like half answer that question. Um, maybe someone can say something to answer the actual question, but from a more kind of physical point of view. But um, IceNet in the Arctic, so for forecasting Arctic sea ice, uh, it's worth mentioning that IceNet, my sea ice forecasting AI, is trained on the first roughly 30, 35 years of data. So um, it's actually 1979 to 2011 is, is what it's uh, learning from. And then the years after 2011, so 2012 onwards, were used for kind of validating and testing its performance. So I can't tell you about it, the relative importance of different variables that it sees as input from earlier in the record, because that's kind of cheating. It was used to train the model. But from the period of held out data, so looking at its forecasts, um, from 2012 onwards, what we did see was that the relative importance of different variables really depended on the initial on, on the, the month that's being forecast. So as I mentioned, there's that strong annual cycle, and there are these different timescales of um, of um, kind of connections between variables and sea ice, or you know other phenomena and sea ice at different points in the season. So the kind of relative importance of, of different things changes uh, annual, uh, through the annual cycle. And what we found is that IceNet kind of respects that um, rule of thumb, which is good. So uh, when it's forecasting summer conditions, it depends much more heavily on these kind of recent atmospheric processes um, and um, as well as the sea ice concentrate, the sea ice map at the initialization state. Whereas when we're forecasting winter, winter is less variable. So the sea ice has expanded a massive amount. It's locked in with the land. There's just generally a bit less going on. It has less wiggle room. That's that's a bit of a um, generalization, but you get the you get the picture. And in the in the winter time, its forecasts depend on really different variables. So I guess that kind of half answers your question that you can look at the relative importance of of different things that you're giving to an AI system. Um, and so this is actually just quickly that this is all coming from the, the world of explainable AI or interpretable machine learning. And the, the whole field of that has quite a way to go still, but there are kind of questions that you can ask uh, and experiments that you can run to probe the uh, so-called black box of the AI system. We call it a black box because it's like we put things in and we get things out and we don't know what's going on. But uh, slowly but surely, we're starting to kind of unravel the black box and develop this toolkit to uh, kind of understand the, the kind of things going on uh, inside the AI system. Cool. 
So thanks for that, Tom. I'd, I'd actually like to take us into looking at the time. I'd like to take us into these kind of last set of questions and uh, that are a bit open-ended and uh, that can be really fun to talk about. So why don't we start with Kelly. And Kelly, I'd like to ask you, in your thinking about your pathway into science, thinking about how you ended up where you are, what is something that surprised you along the way about this could either be how science works, how field work actually happens, you know, anything that you found surprising that you really kind of learned in your pathway from, uh, you know, being in, in school to now being a scientist who's going out doing measurement campaigns, using the new ship in the future? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I am, um... I think a couple of things I could probably say that I've learned along the way, or looking back now, I would say that I've learned. I mean, I think the first one um, was don't underestimate the uh, the effect of sort of random random events. You know, I got into polar science by um, attending a, a seminar that was given by um, a guy who was visiting my university department during my undergraduate degree, and you know, these are non-mandatory seminars and I and he had worked in Antarctica in the field he was a geologist and he'd been in a field camp for many weeks and um and going to that one seminar and then speaking to him during that you know asking questions and then speaking to him afterwards sort of sparked the whole interest in polar science um, and at that time, you know, when I was at university, they didn't routinely teach um, environmental or, or oceanography, um, sort of environmental science or oceanography as a separate module. Um, so I, you know, so it was sort of limited how you could get to sort of look at earth system science at that time. So, yeah, I would say don't underestimate <laughs> the power of something quite random or, or, you know, sort of chance meetings or, you know, so if you're depending on what you're interested in. You know, people should just go to go to everything and see see where it takes you. Um, I suppose the other thing that I've learned is a little bit of patience. Um, usually, if I have ideas and maybe something won't work the first time, you know, that, whether that's simply applying for funding or um, trying to get an experiment to work or a project idea off the ground, um, you know, is that actually with persistence, um, it, it, things usually come come good and I and that sort of restores my faith in the whole <laughs> process of education and science that you know you sort of do the legwork and then you reap the rewards um they're probably quite boring answers but uh, no no yeah I don't know <laughs> that's, no, that's I, probably the two I like that yeah and it's it's a theme that comes up on the show a lot uh, that uh you know very 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 few people have this actual clean story of, well, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be uh, like, that's, that's a, uh, no, Hugh Griffiths is the only person who's given that answer. Um, and everybody else has been like, not to pick on you. Uh, he's okay though. He, he's, he's super nice. Um, but you know, everyone else <laughs> describes the kind of randomness of, uh, you know, well, I went to this seminar, like you said, or I just happened to take this class or I met this person and yeah, for, for me, I mean, I could have ended up in a very different um, path. Actually, I mean, part of why I'm here is the financial crash back in 2008, because I had a job as an instructor of physics and astronomy at a university, and I was really liking that job. And um, had the financial crash not happened, I probably would have just kept working that job. But the crash uh, 
made the funding go away from my post. And so I had to like, Ooh, what do I want to do now? Um, so I started thinking and started applying to places and, uh, now have ended up here. It's been quite random in that way. Yeah. How about you, Tom? What was something that surprised you along the way in your pathway into kind of where you are now? Right. Well, yeah, that's a good question actually. So I think my, uh, I think I was always a, a creative kid, but I was never, I wasn't a, a you know, determined um, scientist from a, from a young age, like a lot of people. Um, I think I, I used to ask my mum to give me uh, science quizzes in the car uh, when I was about eight or so. <laughs> and, you know, she'd ask like, um, you know, what, what, what's the process called when plants generate energy from sunlight? I'm like, oh, photosynthesis. So. So yeah, shout out to my mum for that, that early inspiration. <laughs> um, but I think something that surprised me is from my path and just speaking from my experiences, um, I went to a, a state school that was quite unacademic, but I had one or two really inspirational teachers. And, and I think that's something that's turned out to be quite form, um, you know, quite formative for me and actually really guided my, ultimately, you know, really changed things my life direction so the importance of having one or two inspiration inspirational teachers even in um otherwise um not particularly academic or scholarly uh c conditions right um mm -hmm. but also yeah and i guess that, that if, if anyone is listening from um backgrounds you know at state schools or and are worrying about the finances of university i think keep in mind scholarships so i actually won something resembling not one but was given something resembling a, a full scholarship to cambridge and they can be really substantial and transformative so yeah that's the only reason i'm actually here um but yeah i wanted to say now kind of more updating from from since i've kind of left uni and started this research position something that's really surprised me is the the kind of value of interdisciplinary collaboration within the sciences because at school everything is really compartmentalized uh, mm. you have your physics and biology etc but you know, in in reality you know the real world doesn't actually have these clearly defined limits between things mm. um and it's fun for me coming from a machine learning background from my university course, because these algorithms are really like inherently domain independent. So I have the, the pleasure of being able to apply these algorithms in different contexts. And, and people seem to be quite uh, happy that I do that, which is a, a bonus. Um, but within the sciences as well, there's really, I've been really um, fascinated to, to read and learn about advances within the sciences from Kind of blending and confusing and weirding these boundaries and, and definitions between the sciences oh that's great really really nice answers but both of you thanks thanks so much for that i was thinking about what you said tom about the importance of teachers and you know i can think back and i had a really inspirational physics teacher who you know challenged us and kind of gave us an opportunity to 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 shine and like um gave us an opportunity to try different things and gave us good feedback. And, you know, I've had math teachers who kind of reflected back to me that like, no, no, you, you should be doing this. 
there was a time in university where I was trying, I was thinking about being a history major. I was going off in that direction and that would have been fine. But I actually had one of my old high school um, math teachers say like, well, there's nothing wrong with that, but you should be taking math classes too, which, um, you know, was one of the only times somebody that I remember, you know, had explicitly said, Hey, you're, you're good at that. You should actually think about that. Cause I don't know when, when you're young, this is certainly true for me. You don't even necessarily have a great sense of what you're good at. It's it's just, you're not really configured quite in a way that helps you really appreciate that. I don't think you're just trying different things. Uh, so it can be really impactful to have an adult, you know, that is running a class tell you like, Oh, actually you're good at this. I see the talent in you for this particular thing and you should develop that and work on it. Well, nearing the end here, I wanted to give Ella a chance. Is there anything else you wanted to ask our guests? No, I think we've done a real journey through a whole bunch of really fascinating topics. And it's really always nice to hear the, the, the narrative behind how, how colleagues have gotten to where they are. And I think, yeah, it's the only thing that is really common between lots of scientists is that it's a really meandering route a lot of the time. <laughs> and Hmm. people or random events along the way can make a really huge difference and it's quite exciting and inspirational to think uh, if all these random collection of events have got you to the place you are now then where might you be in the next 10 years yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you know that's a great point and it's, it's not just about science is it I mean that's kind of a good general way to look at kind of being alive and experiencing things because uh, know now over the course of the the past year the pandemic um i feel like i've learned a lot about myself and i've learned a lot about my friends and i've actually made some friends online and i've actually like you know come to kind of just have a better understanding of who, who i am it's been kind of nice actually to have a little bit of time away from having to go into the office constantly because i think that going into the office Im imposes a certain set of pressures on you and maybe uh kind of mold you in a certain way without you necessarily realizing it it's kind of i mean there's nobody there who's like trying to artificially suppress me i'm not saying that i'm just saying when you're free of that social constraint you can learn more about yourself and by the way i'm in saying that i'm not trying to dismiss the the rough part of that as well i have really missed seeing people and i've really missed having my office sometimes and i've really missed you know being around other people so that certainly has been really challenging um, but there's also been a, a some elements of discovery in there that I have come to really appreciate and and value. Um, and the pandemic is maybe a larger scale perturbation than what we were thinking of in terms of random events. Uh, but looking at where I am now, I feel like I can see a lot of random perturbations and big big perturbations as well that have led me to where I am now. I'm I'm a if I say if I say I'm a Plinko chip, do you know that reference, or is that like a really U.S. centric reference? Okay, that's a really no U.S. centric idea. reference. Okay, <laughs> well, there's so there's this old game show called The Price Is Right, and it's the Plinko is a game where you've got a bunch of pegs, and you've got a little disc, and you drop it from the top, and it takes like a random path down. It kind of bounces between all the pegs, and you try to predict which um, slot it's going to end up in. You can get toys like this, which produce these lovely Gaussian distributions, actually, because the balls follow these random pathways, and it makes a lovely little Gaussian distribution. So this was a this was a um, game show, a game on one of the game shows that was um, popular when I was a kid in elementary school. It was 
one of the ones that if you were home sick from school, you'd get to watch it because it's on at like 11 in the morning. Yeah. One of those, one of those. Guys. But anyway, so like, yeah, I'm a Plinko chip and I'm a chip in this kind of game, right? You just kind of, you go down different pathways. Maybe that's not a great analogy. We do have some agency in what we're doing, but you know, you can view yourself as being perturbed and following a certain pathway. Thanks to all these random, random jumps. Uh, oh, we've got Q and A. Um, should I do one more? Uh, yeah, so this is Philip Spencer. Thank you for your answer. I was indeed asking uh, for this AI. Uh, any indications if there were changes in the areas that are responsible for CI changes? Uh, oh, it's so, but... a response to um, my, my answer. Yeah, but the answer was okay. Thanks very much. Really cool. Okay, yeah, that's the that's the response. I see that's what you good. mean. Yeah, cool. Well, um, let me just do all my thank yous because. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the BASS communications team. So Amanda uh, Wynn has been really, really helpful in setting all of this up for us and in making sure that it was as easy as possible for us on the day to just drop in here and get going. Um, I'd like to thank all of the attendees for coming along and for submitting their questions beforehand. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, with It's uh, really nice to have you here live uh, to interact with us that that was a really fun component of this and it's something that i've been wanting to do for a long time so for me it's like i really do appreciate that a lot uh i want to thank tom thank you tom for being here and for offering your expertise and your knowledge and some really nice explanations of the uh, arctic system and where ai sits in the research landscape i'd like to thank kelly thank you kelly for being here and talking about um, the new ship you know your pathway into science some great uh, we're talking about being interdisciplinary, right? There's oceanography, icebergs, ecology, all of that is in that story. And uh, I really appreciate your expertise and for giving us some hints as to what the new ship is going to be up to. Um, thanks, Ella. Thanks for being here and for being the co-host. I really appreciate that very much. And uh, especially when, for example, the internet drops out for a minute and I get totally kicked off of my own podcast and uh you all run the show for a little while what you don't and, uh, know dan is that my internet also cut out exactly the same moment <laughs> did it i wasn't here for that for, actually... for like a second no. for just a second oh, okay. don't worry okay. tom and i were completely professional and just took over yeah yeah they interviewed each other it was great <laughs> oh good well thanks thanks for doing that like, yeah now we can really now we can really say what we think about <laughs> yeah, yeah we're free of the constraints those, those guys <laughs> yeah. And thanks to Lillian Blair for our uh, audio engineering consultation. She gave us some really good best practices tips on how to get good audio. And uh, we are going to, we've, we've done all our separate recordings and we're going to do our best to kind of get those, uh, you know, all stitched up together. Thanks to Sean Williams page. She is our new editor who's been helping us cut all of this together. It's really, really appreciated. Um, and thanks um, to yeah all of you for listening and downloading in the future, whenever you're listening and downloading this uh, after it comes out. And uh, I hope that you found it interesting. So yeah, I guess if that's it, thanks to everyone. Thanks to all of you. And uh, this has been really great. I really uh, have been looking forward to doing something like this for a long time. And it's, uh, I think it came out really nicely. I'm, I'm really pleased. I hope you, hope you all had a good time and enjoyed yourselves. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great random conversation that I can already see connections between us all. So it's great. Nice. Thanks so Excellent. much, Ella and Dan. Thanks for coming. It's been great. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, if that's it, um, I guess I'll just hit 
end and I guess that will end the webinar so I think this will say bye to all the attendees so bye attendees I'm gonna kick you all out now collectively um, I'm gonna actually it only says end meeting for all and leave meeting so is there I guess the, the four of us are okay we don't need to wrap up or anything right now do we we're, we're probably fine so I'll just I'll hit stop on the recording uh, oh okay that's fine talk to you all later bye, bye.